This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, joining me on today's program is returning guest, Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Uh, Gary has been a longtime Forbes columnist. He is also the publisher of the widely read newsletter, Insight. And I'm going to get Gary's take on the economy, on Fed policy, and Gary has a bit of a different take on inflation from some of the other guests I've had here on the program, and I know you're going to appreciate Gary's perspective. So that will be in segments two and three of today's program. In a couple of weeks, my new book titled Retirement Roadmap will be released. Retirement Roadmap is a book that shows how many aspiring retirees can use the revenue sourcing process to achieve a secure, often tax-free retirement in today's economy. It is an updated version of the revenue sourcing book that was released last year. I'd like to invite you to get a copy when it becomes available. If you would like to get a copy of the book, all you need to do is go to the website RoadmapToRetirementBook.com RoadmapToRetirementBook.com and I'll be glad to send you a copy when it becomes available. Again, the website RoadmapToRetirementBook.com One of the topics in the Roadmap to Retirement book is that currency and money are actually different. Now, if you were to ask many people what currency and money are and what the difference is, Many people would say they're the same thing. Currency and money are synonyms, but they're really not. If you look at currency over time, currency evolves. I've studied these currency evolutions extensively. I talk about them in uh, the book. And these evolutions are predictable, and they lead, in my view, to equally predictable economic and investing climates. That's why being able to define money and define currency are so important. So what is money and what is currency? Well, the difference between currency and money is simply this. Over time, money is a good store of value. Over time, when currency and money are different, Currency is not a good store of value. Now, at times in the past, you can study history and see that currency and money have been the same thing often, but today they are vastly different. It's because as you study history and see this currency money cycle evolve, you will see that we are now, in my view, at the end or nearing the end of this currency money cycle. Now, let me give you an example to make the point clear. About 90 years ago, in the United States, currency and money were the same thing. Gold, which has real, tangible, intrinsic value, circulated in the the economy, and gold was actually used to buy goods and buy services. See, at that time, gold was money, and gold was currency. Now, all that changed in 1933. And many of you history buffs know what happened in 1933. That's when Franklin Roosevelt, the president, issued an executive order that forced all American citizens to sell their gold. 
If you were an American citizen, you had to give up your gold, and in return, you got $20 in cash. So you sold your gold for $20 per ounce. Now, prior to that, I'll call gold confiscation event, gold was valued at $20 an ounce. A $20 gold piece contained an ounce of gold. If you had one of these gold pieces, it had $20 in purchasing power. Now, at that time, currency and money were the same thing. Now, let's fast forward to today. When, America, when, when President Roosevelt confiscated the gold of American citizens, those citizens got a $20 bill. That paper bill had no intrinsic value, and as time passed, the paper bill, as we all know, lost purchasing power. Here's the point. When American citizens were forced to give up their gold, the $20 paper bill and the $20 gold piece had the same purchasing power. The $20 paper bill and the $20 gold piece bought the same exact amount of goods and services. Now fast forward to today. The $20 paper bill still buys $20 worth of goods and services, but the $20 gold piece, if you have one in your possession, has more than $2,000 in purchasing power. See the difference between money and currency? Money is a good store of value over time. Currency is not necessarily a good store of value over time. There are times in history when currency and money are the same thing, but there are times when they are different. And this cycle or this evolution is very predictable, and it comes in four stages. Stage one, as I just discussed, has currency and money as the same thing. At this stage of the currency money cycle, gold or gold and silver circulate in the economy. It's money and currency, and it's used to pay for goods and services. The second stage of this cycle has paper bills that are issued, and at this stage of the currency money cycle, the paper bills can be redeemed for gold or silver. Some of you may have heard some of you may even be old enough to remember silver certificates. Back in the 60s, silver certificates circulated. These were paper bills, but on the bill it said, for example, on a $10 silver certificate, it said $10 in silver payable to the bearer on demand. So these silver certificates, these paper bills were directly redeemable for the real money. Stage three of this cycle has paper bills being a fiat currency. They can no longer be redeemed for gold and silver at a fixed rate. We now have a pure fiat currency. And stage four of the cycle, because politicians and policymakers eventually print too much fiat currency, the fiat currency eventually fails. Now let's go back for a moment and just look at the idea of this silver certificate. In 1964, a $10 silver certificate could be used to claim 10 silver dollars. In other words, the $10 silver certificate and the 10 silver dollars had the same purchasing power at that point in time. Today, however, all that has changed and it nicely illustrates the difference between money and currency. 
That $10 silver certificate, if you have one in your possession today, still has $10 worth of purchasing power. However, the 10 silver dollars contain about 7.2 ounces of silver, and 7.2 ounces of silver has more than a couple hundred dollars in purchasing power. You probably see the difference. The silver coins are money. The silver certificate is currency. Now, at the present time, only fiat currency is used in commerce in every country in the world, and there are massive amounts of currencies being created every day by world central banks. So in my view, we are now nearing the end of this predictable currency money cycle, and I talk about that in the book. And if you'd like to get the Retirement Roadmap book when it's released in a couple of weeks, I'd invite you to go to the website, RoadmapToRetirementBook.com. The website, again, is RoadmapToRetirementBook.com. You can go there and give us your name and address, and when the book is released, we'd be very glad to send you a complimentary copy of the book. Now, those of you that have been listening to this entire segment are probably wondering why this currency money cycle repeats itself. Why is this currency money cycle so predictable? Well, if you think about it, you know the answer. It's because the collective behavior of politicians is predictable. In the last segment of today's program, I'll talk about this and give you some historical examples, but politicians collectively, as a group, eventually always spend more than the tax revenues that they collect. And at a certain point when debts and deficits get large enough, there's only two ways to solve the problem. There's only two ways to get out of the fiscal mess in which the politicians find themselves. One, cut spending. Two, create currency. The third option of raising taxes at a certain point doesn't become an option because it's impossible to raise that much in tax revenues from the populace. And in my view, that's where we are today. I talk about this in detail in the Retirement Roadmap book. Again, that will be released in just a couple weeks. I'd like to invite you to get a copy when it is released. All you need to do is go to the website, RoadmapToRetirementBook.com. The website, again, is RoadmapToRetirementBook.com, and I'll be glad to send you a copy when it's released. I will be back after these words with my special guest today, Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Welcome back to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me once again on today's program is returning guest, Dr. A. Gary Schilling. He is the publisher of the widely read newsletter, Insight. If you'd like to learn more, you can go to his website. That's agaryshilling.com. You can also call his office. The number is 888-346-7444, and I'll be giving that number again uh, later this segment. And uh, Dr. Schilling, welcome back to the program. 
Thanks to be back with you. It's always a pleasure. Well, Gary, um, to say the last year and a half has been crazy, economically speaking, would be an understatement. Give the listeners your assessment of the health of the U.S. economy as we talk today. Well, the economy is probably going to grow more slowly in the next few quarters than it has recently. There's a huge reopening catch-up. But what is basically happening is that all this money that has been pumped into the economy by the Fed and by three rounds of fiscal stimuli, all those checks people got in March a year ago, December the last year, and then March of this year, people have not spent that money. Now, consumers account for two-thirds of economic activity. So if they're withholding that spending and building up their assets, repaying their debts, you just don't have the making of a great economy. And 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 uh, this this is uh, the numbers are really interesting. If you look at March a year ago of those stimulus checks, consumers spent uh, they spent 29 percent. They saved the rest. When you came to December, they they spent even less. They went from 29 to 26 percent. And in March, from 26 to 25 percent. And that's based on uh, surveys by the New York Federal Reserve Bank. Uh, so, so you really have consumers who are not in a big spending mood. I think they were shaken up by the by the pandemic and really feel the need to 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 save, rebuild assets, pay down debts. So, Gary, given that consumers are not in a big mood to spend, and yet given that there are signs of emerging inflation, how do you square those two phenomenon? Well, I I don't I don't think that inflation is a major threat. Uh, it seems to me that it's more a matter of reopening uh, the the problems of reestablishing supply signs, the bottlenecks, and so on and so forth. I think these are temporary. And and if you look at the if you look at the 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 numbers, the sentiment numbers, and so on, uh, inflation fears have definitely receded. You look at uh, surveys made the University of Michigan survey of consumer sentiment. They're they're forecasting. Uh, they say consumers over the next five to ten years see 2.8 percent inflation, and that's the same forecast they've had since 1990. It, 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 or since 2000 hasn't changed. Uh, Atlanta Fed has a survey of businesses uh, about the same numbers, and then if you look at securities markets, and these are what's what's priced in. Uh, by the various uh, b- various futures markets, uh, they're looking at at something like 2.1% inflation when you go out five years and then five years beyond that. So, you know, I think we're 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 pulling away. And what's very important about that, Dennis, is we have not seen the development of inflationary expectations. Now, that's the situation that the Fed really worries about because that's when people say. Prices are going up. I'm going to buy ahead. It strains inventories. It it uh, strains production. So prices go up in response. Suspicions are confirmed. People buy even more. It's a vicious circle. It works both ways on the inflation and deflation side. But that has definitely not have not occurred. So I think that I, I think that we're going to see lower inflation numbers in the second half of this year. And 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 we will see that this is really no big no big lasting threat. Uh, uh, it would probably be back to inflation, you know, 2% or even less. 
So you would agree then with uh, Chairman Powell's assessment that this is transitory and that it's uh, largely a consequence of the reopening of the economy? Yes, I do. And I, I don't always agree. As you know, I don't agree with the Fed on a lot of things uh, and certainly not all the time. But in this case, I think I think their uh, I think their view is is correct. And, you know, Dennis, the, the big one of the big challenges for us as a as forecasters and the way you can really add value for your for your clients is to see beyond the ephemeral developments, the day to day kinds of things. This is what dominates the, the the media, and it's always people want to be excited by something. I mean, no, no financial uh, network is going to say, "Well, there's nothing really exciting to report today. Why don't you go? Why don't you turn us off and, and go out and weed your garden?" Uh, there's always got to be something exciting, and that's that's I think that's a big uh, role that I try to play is to say what is important and what is just a passing development that you ought to overlook particularly as you look at your business, you look at your investment portfolio. Well, I'm chatting today with Dr. A. Gary Schilling. He's the publisher of the widely read newsletter, Insight. You can learn more at his website, agaryshilling.com. And his office number, if you'd like to learn more, is 888-346-7444. I'd encourage you to check that out. So, Gary, several years ago, you wrote a book called uh, The Age of Deleveraging. And forgive me if I got the title uh, wrong. Uh, but in the book, you talked about massive levels of debt that will have to kind of work its way through the economy. Uh, wh- where do you stand now? It seems that debt levels are maybe uh, higher than they were when you wrote the book. Well, th- no, actually, uh, Dennis, debt levels, I mean, you always have to have a denominator on it. I mean, everything gets bigger in time. But if you look at debt, uh, consumer debt, uh, most economists tend to look at it in relation to after-tax income, disposable personal income, it's called. And if you look at that, uh, it used to run 60%, that ratio. Uh, and that's debt from mortgages, car loans, student loans, uh, almost any, any borrowing that's legal. That ratio used to be about 60%. In the early 80s, it started to rise up to 135%, 60 to 135 uh, with, the, with, the, uh, with the financial crisis. <clears throat> it's now down to about 104%, but it's still a long way from that from that 80% norm. And I'm a strong believer in returning to norm, particularly uh, when they're well established. On top of that, <clears throat> as I mentioned earlier, uh, that that ratio has gotten a further nosedive recently as consumers have socked away all this money they've gotten from from the government. Uh, they're not spending it; they're they're saving it. They're investing it otherwise, but they're not spending it on goods and services. So Gary, what do you see uh, as the Fed's policy moving ahead? It seems that uh, they still have the pedal to the metal, to use that term, still still creating currency. Uh, interest rates are low. Do you see anything changing there? Well, the, the Fed is, uh, you know, the analogy is pushing on a string. If you have a string, if you pull it, if you pull it, you tighten it, uh, you can get a result. But you push on a string, nothing happens. It just goes limp. And that's that's the role of monetary policy. When the Fed wants to tighten, uh, they can reduce the availability of credit, and it has very distinct effects on the economy. But when they try to ease credit, uh, and and the markets and and individuals and businesses don't want to borrow, nothing happens. You look at you look at, for example, the increase in in the money supply that the Fed has created. It's gone through the roof. But then you look at what's called the velocity of money, the turnover of that money. 
It's collapsed. That money is just sitting in, in accounts. As a matter of fact, big banks are encouraging their major borrowers not to leave deposits in the bank because they have to, they have to pay uh, reserves. They have to pay fees on those. So you really have all this money and it's, it's just lying there fallow. It's not, going, it's not going anywhere. So the Fed is very ineffective right now. And they basically admitted it. They sort of said that the action is with uh, fiscal policy. But then you had all this fiscal stimuli that I mentioned earlier, and it's, it's done very little to increase the economy. Uh, you say, what we do with the Fed, I'll move to a different aspect. If I, were, if I were the Fed, I'd give up on this idea of what they call forward guidance, telling investors, the country, what they're going to do next, because they have been among the worst forecasters you can imagine <laughs> in the last decade. And none of us have covered ourselves with glory. I'm not suggesting the contrary, but their forecasts have been atrocious. They have been forecasting a rise of inflation, uh, a rise of a rise in interest rates, even the interest rates that they control, they set them, the federal funds rate, it's their rate. Nobody, nobody bucks the Fed on that one. And, and yet they have been very poor forecasters of what they are going to do with their own rate in the future. If I were the Fed, I'd go back to where they used to, uh, where they really just don't tell, try to tell the markets anything, because I think lousy information is worse than no information. Well, we're going to get your forecast for various markets in the next segment, Gary. Uh, but when you take a look at one event that is uh, coming up here, the rent moratoriums are due to expire. Uh, what impact do you think that will have on the housing market, which seems to be maybe repeating 2007, 2008? What's your take? Yeah, as a matter of fact, in our, uh, in our uh, new insight, our, our August insight, which will go to the go to, uh, press later this week, uh, uh, I, I, I take a look at the housing market. We, we've done this a couple of months earlier, and I think the single family housing market is, is peaking out anyway. You had this rush of people out of expensive, cramped suburban uh, 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 suburban apartments to larger quarters in the suburbs and rural areas with the pandemic. They wanted more room for a home office for the kids at home, et cetera, et cetera. So, so you, you really had that rush, but now I, I, it's, it's really, I think it's topped out. It's starting, it's starting to recede. Uh, the evidence are that, that uh, housing inventories are rising, that uh, applications for mortgages uh, are, are declining all, all the kind of all the kind of indicators. Now you come to your point about the about the moratorium on on uh, mortgages uh, uh, foreclosures that is set to expire in September. But we've seen a very we've seen a history consistently, really going back to the Trump administration and even more recently uh, the Biden administration of extending that, pushing it out. I mean, home ownership is very near and dear to the heart of any politician. And, you know, the idea of somebody being thrown out on the street with their, with their, with their baggage and their wife and three screaming kids, you know, with a news camera cranking. Hey, that's not a, anything that any politician wants to see. Uh, that's a little exaggerated, but, but I, I, I think they probably will end up e- extending that. Uh, it, it's, uh, but, but that's, that's not what I think is a major issue. I think a major issue is that, you simply had a, a bubble in housing with a rush out of uh, to single-family housing, and it's uh, it's really topping topping out. Well, my guest today is Dr. A. Gary Schilling. He's the publisher of Insight. You can learn more about the publication, which I would encourage you to do 
at Gary's website. It's agaryshilling.com. You could also call his office at 888-346-7444. And I'll continue my conversation with Gary when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. I'm Dennis Tubergen, your host. You're listening to RLA Radio. I have the distinct pleasure of chatting once again today with Dr. A. Gary Schilling. He is a returning guest here to the program and uh, publishes a terrific newsletter every month. It's really more like a magazine. It's titled Insight. And uh, if you'd like to get a complimentary copy to see what it's all about, I'd encourage you to do that. Gary has graciously agreed to provide you one. All you have to do to request it is call his office at 888-346-7444. Gary, prior to the break, we were talking a bit about housing, and it was your view that the housing market uh, is probably topping out here. Uh, A number of the guests I have around the program are of the opinion that we're really in an everything bubble and that we're going to see stocks and real estate and, and, and a lot of asset classes probably react. Uh, negatively, and we'll see a pricing reset here. What, what's your opinion? Well, there's no question there's been a tremendous amount of speculation. You had all this money pumped out by the Fed and by the fiscal stimuli, and it didn't go into spending on goods and services. Where did it go? Some of it went into housing, which is, is not counted as part of goods and services. And going to that, Dennis, as you know, is a long explanation, but it's, it's a separate category. And of course, a lot of it went into stocks. And that's really repeated what happened after the uh, 2008 financial crisis when the Fed pumped out a lot of money and it basically went into stocks and propelled stocks. Uh, so you've had it, but it, stocks have gotten very expensive. There's been a tremendous amount of speculation. And when you look at what's happened to some of these things like, like Bitcoin and, and Dogecoin, you know, which is which was set up as a joke. I mean, not, not even a crypto reality. And, and then uh, GameStop and AMC Entertainment, all these, all these things. And you've gotten all these new investors who've rushed in, first-time investors, and they think they are lords of the universe. Uh, and, and, you know, you've had, these, you've had some of these stocks that have had setbacks uh, recently. Now, they, that's after tremendous run-ups. But, you know, the attitude of many of these investors is buy the dip. Well, here's, here's what I call grade school math, Dennis. If you've got a stock that went up 100%, let's say it went from 10 to 20, but then it corrects by 50%, where are you? You're back to 10. 50% off of, the, off of a 100% increase takes you back to where you started. And that's what happened. And a lot of these people don't, don't seem to realize this, and they think that this is going to continue. And it really, it really reminds me an awful lot of the speculation that happened in the early 1970s when you had the Nifty 50. Uh, you and I, I think, are old enough to remember that. Maybe a lot of our listeners aren't. But you had this idea of stocks uh, that a smaller and smaller group of stocks, and we had the same thing. And back then, uh, people zeroed in on, on, on stocks like, like Winnebago, like Polaroid, like Disney and McDonald's. Well, I remember at the time I said, hey, wait a minute. Uh, these are not the guts of the economy. Hamburger stands, gimmick cameras, motor homes, amusement parks. 
that's not the that's not the guts of the economy and that's one of the reasons that I was successful in forecasting the 1973-75 recession, which up till that time was the deepest since the 1930s. I think we have a lot of that same kind of situation today. I don't know what's going to take the economy with it, but you have had an awful lot of speculation uh, with all this money that it's it's floating around there. As I say, it's not going into goods and services. So what do you do with it? You put it into stocks. So Gary, do you see a similar outcome in the near future to what we saw in 2007, 2008? Uh, no, no, uh, housing, you know, housing was, a, was a big problem then the subprime mortgages. And that was, a, that was ridiculous. You got to the point where, uh, people not only didn't put down any money, but they were able to borrow on what was called a home improvement loan. So they could borrow 120% of the appraised value and the appraised value was inflated and everybody was playing the game. And then they were told by their lenders, you'll never have to make a monthly payment because we're going to refinance as a house appreciates and you'll simply take money out month after month. I mean, it was a wonderful, wonderful uh, construct. Uh, we don't we don't have that uh, now. Uh, down payments are a lot of them are running 20 percent as opposed to zero. Uh, we, we don't have that that kind of situation where you have those extremes. Now, of course, you always got to worry about fighting the last war. If it isn't going to be housing, what's it going to be this time? Uh, could it be all the speculation in the GameStops and AMCs of the world and so on? I don't think that's big enough to take the whole economy with it. Housing is really was a huge sector when you consider not only new construction but uh, but existing housing stock. Uh, so I don't think you I don't think you really have anything like that. Uh, but you certainly you certainly could have some disappointments for people who assume that the economy is going to continue to grow without an interruption and that there's there's no vulnerability. I, I think there is. Stocks are very, very expensive now. Uh, you look at them, uh, one measure, it's called a, the, the uh, cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio put together by my friend Bob Schiller, Nobel Prize winner at Yale, very, very a brilliant economist. And, and stocks would have to decline 55% to bring them back to their long-term average from where they are now. Uh, and other measures, you, you look at it, so you have a, a lot of speculation in stocks. One of the interesting things is, and of course, you know, Dennis, I've been a, I've been a big bull on treasury bonds since the early 80s. And back then the yield on the on the 30-year bond was 14.6%. And I said in print, we're entering the bond rally of a lifetime. And since then, long-term treasury bonds have outperformed, have outperformed the S&P by six times, six times. Now, I, so I, I've got a bias. I, I, I'm still in favor of bonds. I think we still have more appreciation and it's appreciation, not yield. As long as yield is going down, prices go up. But what bonds have been telling us lately is that there's no inflation problem uh, that's, gonna, that's gonna be substantial in the future. Bond prices have been rallying, Interest, uh, bond yields have been coming down. And it also suggests that the economy is probably not gonna be rip roaring. And, and bonds are have a better forecaster than stocks. Uh, we did some look at, at bonds leading uh, recessions, treasury bonds, and their average since 1980 in all the recessions was 16 months. Stocks also led, but only by five months, five months versus 16 months. Uh, so I'm not saying we got a recession in need of future, but I think that the rally in bonds does suggest that we don't have the inflation problem or the runaway economic growth that many people have expected. 
Well, if you're just joining us, my guest today is Dr. A. Gary Schilling. He's the publisher of the newsletter Insight. You can learn more at agaryshilling.com. And if you'd like a complimentary copy of Insight, Gary has agreed to provide one to any listener that would like it. Call the office, or call his office, I should say, at 888-346-7444 to request your copy. Gary, I'd like your take on, on the labor market. Uh, there's, there's, I read a story uh, that in the city of Chicago, I think the average person that is on unemployment collects $52,000 a year. The average worker is making 56, something along those lines. It seems that we are disincentivizing work. Uh, I'd like your take, and is that really affecting this economic recovery? Yeah, I, I think it is. I think it is. It's uh, uh, If you look at nationally, uh, 43% of, of uh, people are, are making more money through unemployment insurance, and that's the $300 a week federal program on top of the usual state benefits. 43% are making more by staying at home, and that doesn't account the cost of commuting, of clothes for work, and so on and so forth. So, you know, given the fact that a lot of people are not exactly zealous for work <laughs> to begin with, uh, they, are, they are staying at home. The interesting thing is, and, and again, we, we uh, wrote this in our, our last insight, wrote this up in detail, is that businesses, despite their demand for labor and all their cries that we can't find people, they've done a fantastic job of increasing output with fewer people. If you look at from the bottom of the uh, economy in the second quarter of last year uh, through the first quarter of this year, latest data, real GDP, in other words, the total value of all goods and services in the economy, corrective for inflation, is actually up a bit from the, uh, it, it's, it's up a bit from where it was at the beginning of, of, uh, of, uh, of last year. But employment is down 9%. In other words, they're producing more with fewer people. And I think that the pandemic just gave a lot of businesses the incentive, the urge, the push to figure out ways to be more productive, uh, to, to promote productivity. Uh, so so I, I think, and that's, and, and productivity is a really, that's the key to profits in the long run. Uh, wage increases pretty much uh, offset increases in corporate sales. So it's productivity that provides profits. And also productivity is very anti-inflationary because it means that everybody can get more in terms of purchasing power uh, with, without taking away from somebody else and by having prices that don't increase and maybe even decrease. Okay, we have just a couple minutes left in this segment. Uh, what asset classes are your favorites moving ahead and what asset classes are you avoiding? Well, as you, as, as you know, Dennis, we do manage money. And uh, I can tell you what we're doing right now. We are uh, we have a substantial position in long treasury bonds, and I like the I like the thirty year bond as I mentioned earlier. Uh, it isn't for the yield; it's for the further appreciation as as yields decline. And the, and the lower the yields are, the more price appreciation you get for a given decline in, in yields. It's called convexity. You know, it's another complicated term. Uh, but I, but I like treasury bonds. I also like the dollar. The dollar is a, is a safe haven, and I think we're in a, in a world of uncertainty now, and there is that great desire to be in the dollar. And also, if foreigners want to buy treasuries, they got to buy dollars to do so. And, and by the way, uh, uh, the U.S. treasuries, low as their interest rates are, if you look at the 10-year treasury note, and that's pretty much a standard worldwide, and look at comparable 
10-year uh, sovereigns, they call of all other countries, we have the highest yields. We have the highest yields of almost any other country. So investors, if uh, foreign investors, if they invest in, in, uh, in, in treasuries and the dollar's rising, they get a double kick. They get an increased uh, interest return and they also get an appreciating dollar in terms of their own currency. I, I, I like that. Um, so uh, commodities, I think commodities are, are, are probably uh, overpriced. Uh, we don't see the economic growth. Uh, my favorite economy in the uh, economy on the short side is copper because it goes into almost anything manufactured, whether it's machinery, cars, appliances, plumbing fixtures. So if you see a modest growth in industrial production uh, worldwide, uh, you know, co uh, commodities are not going to be needed and, and copper is, is one of those. So uh, those are the kinds of things that we're interested in. Uh, another one is I, I think that... Uh, mentioned housing. I think home builders, uh, that's an area they have had a big run up, but I rather suspect that if, if uh, housing is peaking out, uh, new construction, single family housing, that they're gonna be weak. Well, the clock says, Gary, we've got to leave it there. My guest today has been Dr. A. Gary Schilling. He's the publisher of the newsletter Insight. If you didn't catch his office number earlier to get your complimentary copy of Insight, let me give it to you one more time. It's 888-346-7444. And Gary, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to join us. Always enjoy our conversations. I enjoy it immensely, Dennis, and I always look forward to them. Thanks a lot. We will return after these words. This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you're listening in today, and thanks again to my special guest today, Dr. A. Gary Schilling, for joining us on today's program. As I announced in the first segment of this program, my new book, titled Retirement Roadmap, is being released the middle of this month. If you'd like to get a copy when the book is released, all you need to do is go to the website, RoadmapToRetirementBook.com. The website is RoadmapToRetirementBook.com, and let us know where to mail your copy when the book becomes available. The book is an updated version of the Revenue Sourcing book that was released last year, and the Retirement Roadmap book may show you how to use the revenue sourcing process to achieve a secure, often tax-free retirement in today's economy. In the first segment of the program today, I talked about one of the important concepts that I share in the Retirement Roadmap book. And that's the idea that currency and money historically are often the same thing, but they're often different as they are today. See, money, technically defined, money is a good store of value over a long period of time. When currency and money are the same thing, that can be true of currency but it's not necessarily true of currency when it is not money. A good example, as I shared in the first segment, is that in 1933, when President Roosevelt ordered American citizens to sell their gold at a rate of $20 an ounce, 
American citizens at that time got a $20 bill for their ounce of gold. If you fast forward to today, that $20 paper bill still has $20 in purchasing power. However, that $20 gold piece, that one ounce of gold, if you had it in your possession, would have over $2,000 in purchasing power. So the gold is money. The paper bill is currency. Now, this whole phenomenon has happened many times in U.S. history, and in this segment, I want to share with you briefly just a few examples. After the War of 1812, the government was deeply in debt, and the politicians of the day were grappling with how to deal with the massive levels of debt that existed because of the war. Now, if you're a politician, there's only three ways that you can deal with deficits and accumulated debt. You can, one, raise taxes. You can, two, cut spending. But as we all know, politicians do not have an appetite for cutting spending. Or three, you can print currency. Well, the other thing that history teaches us is that whenever the deficits or the debt get large enough, politicians always seem to opt for creating currency. And currency creation leads to the illusion of prosperity for a while, but eventually, predictably, the bust comes. Now, that's what happened after the War of 1812. A lot of of paper currency was created, and as a result, there was a time in the late 20s and early 1830s when real estate and stocks were booming. It It was a classic prosperity illusion boom. But predictably, the bust followed the boom, and historians refer to this bust as the Panic of 1837. Now, history repeated itself once again in the 1860s when President Lincoln was deliberating how to fund the Civil War. Well, the politicians of the day, along with President Lincoln, passed a law to back the U.S. dollar with gold, silver, and U.S. government debt, and paper bills called greenbacks were printed And the new law said that anyone selling goods or offering services had to accept the new paper bills as payment for goods or services rendered, just like gold and silver. And if you decided not to comply with that law, there would be severe consequences. Again, predictably, this currency creation led to another prosperity illusion boom. The stock market roared and real estate values soared. In fact, the stock market darlings of the late 1860s and early 1870s were railroad stocks. But again, predictably, the bust followed the boom as real estate and stock prices crashed and the Long Depression of 1873 set in. Now, the current central bank of the United States, the one that is in place today, the Federal Reserve, was formed in 1913. Shortly after its formation, the U.S. dollar was no longer backed by gold at a rate of 100%. It was backed at a rate of 40%, which, if you're a mathematician, you can do some reverse math and realize the currency supply expanded by 250%. We had the prosperity illusion boom of the Roaring Twenties, followed by the bust of the Great Depression. Now, as I talk to you today, we are at an all-time extreme when it comes to currency creation. Can the bust be far off? Regardless as to what you think about inflation, 
certainly currency creation inflates the value artificially of asset classes. History teaches us that. So if you've not yet taken steps to understand this and to protect yourself, I'd like to invite you to get a copy of my book that will be released mid-month here titled Retirement Roadmap. To get a copy of the book, all you need to do is go to RoadmapToRetirementBook.com. That is RoadmapToRetirementBook.com, RoadmapToRetirementBook.com. You know, the dollar has now been a fiat currency since 1971. In 1971, the dollar was redeemable for gold at a rate of $35 an ounce. So if you go back and take a look at two brothers, one that kept the $25,000 in cash since 1971 and one that had $25,000 in gold in 1971, today the brother that kept the $25,000 in cash would have $25,000 the brother that kept the $25,000 in gold would have about $1.4 million in purchasing power. That's the difference between currency and money. And if you're planning for retirement, it's a very important distinction to understand and to incorporate into your plan. The Roadmap to RetirementBook.com website is where you go to get the Retirement Roadmap book. That's RoadmapToRetirementBook.com. I'll be glad to send you a copy when the book is released. Again, the website, RoadmapToRetirementBook.com. That's all the time I have for this week. I'll be back again next week. Hope you got something you can use. Have a great week. 